Changing planes at LaGuardia is at best not a lot of fun. In November 2001, the gritty passageways were unfriendlier than usual. Young New York Army National Guard soldiers, clad in camouflage uniforms, toting M-16 rifles, scanned the screen flyers for signs of potential terrorists. Young soldiers, clearly unused to their role in policing the corridors of one of the nation's busiest airports. Like the heavily armed New Yorkers, I was a citizen soldier, but dressed in a blue blazer, gray slacks, and Burberry trench coat, tugging a black leather-wheeled carry-on behind me. As I paused first to glance at the soldiers, then moved on to stare out the plate-glass windows at the still-smoldering New York City skyline, I could feel my passport, an airline ticket to Venice, Italy, filling the blazer's interior breast pocket. The military orders sending me to Vicenza, Italy, tucked in the briefcase slung over my shoulder. It wouldn't be my first trip overseas in the service of the American military, nor would it be my last. But it would be my first trip overseas after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which destroyed the World Trade Center towers, killing thousands, as other terrorist hijacked airplanes crashed into the Pentagon and a field in Pennsylvania. Little did we know then that we as a nation were embarking on a more than two-decade-long odyssey that would see tens of thousands of American military members deployed to places few Americans could pronounce, let alone find on a globe. Thousands of those service members killed, tens of thousands wounded, and trillions of dollars poured into an effort to eradicate terrorist havens that would become known as our forever war. Those days yet ahead. Like the beefed-up security at LaGuardia, American military bases throughout the world in the weeks after 9-11 saw stepped-up security. America's military shock absorber, the folks who back up the full-time Army and Air Force, the Army and Air National Guard, had already begun the first of many mobilizations from their home states. Big Army, as we in the Guard refer to the active duty force, needed help. And as the National Guard motto says, we were always ready, always there. With little more than a week's notice, Major Bob Roth, a full-time Illinois Army National Guard lawyer, and I, a then part-time Army National Guard Lieutenant Colonel, we're on our way to beef up the staff at a little-known U.S. Army base in the north of Italy. Vicenza is, and was then, the home of the 173rd Airborne Brigade, the Army's quick reaction force for Africa and other troubled spots within the Air Force C-130 flight range. C-130 Herkies are the four-engine propeller-driven relics of Vietnam that are famed for getting cargo and troopers to places they're needed if not always welcomed by opposing forces. Having flown into Afghanistan on one more than once, I can tell you they're slow, noisy, uncomfortable, but reliable. With those 4,500-horsepower Allison turboprops hauling 64 paratroopers and their gear through the unfriendly skies that United doesn't fly. With a design that's 60 years old, they've hauled today's soldiers' grandfathers off to war. At that point, none of us knew who, what, when, or where the U.S. would strike. 
But the buildup of forces and increased training could only mean one thing, and it didn't involve diplomacy, other than the diplomacy necessary to line up partners for a gunfight. Just as Bush Sr.'s administration sought allies for the first Gulf War, Bush Jr. likewise worked the phones to line up support for military action to come. Wedged into the economy class American nonstop to Venice, I reflected on how lucky I was to be headed overseas. As a recent U.S. Army War College graduate, which is the last stop in Army training to qualify a soldier for general officer rank, I'd been selected for full colonel a year and a half before. Selection for promotion, though, is but the first step in the process of putting on eagles. There must be a vacant position for the selectee to step into. Colonel slots are scarce as hen's teeth, as my Illinois farm family grandmother would say. So a year and a half later, I was still a lieutenant colonel awaiting promotion. Big Army didn't mind sending the National Guard lieutenant colonel overseas, but they balked at sending a full colonel. As it screwed up the rank structure to have an Army National Guard full colonel showing up at an overseas post. So even though I chopped at the bit for the promotion, increased responsibility, not to mention higher pay, I willingly suffered those indignities to head to Italy and temporary duty with one of the Army's premier units. The overnight cross-Atlantic flight put us into the smallish international Venetian airport mid-morning Sunday. A lower-ranking enlisted soldier met us outside baggage claim and loaded us up into an American sedan staff car. Nothing like standing out in Italian traffic in one of Detroit's finest. Were a terrorist at all interested, we were a rolling billboard. Gentlemen, this is the car you'll be driving while you're here, the specialist told us. That's nice, they're giving us a staff car, I thought. Big Army doesn't usually hand out staff cars to lieutenant colonels. The specialist quickly disabused me of the idea that the staff car amounted to a nice gesture on the part of the Army. The BOQ is full. All the visiting officers' quarters are full. There is no place on post for you gentlemen to stay. So you're housed on an old NATO missile base, about five miles off post, he said. It was closed back in the 70s, he went on, but they've reopened some of the buildings to house the overflow of you guard guys coming in. Your military driver's license is good in Europe. You do have a military driver's license, don't you? Yes, I did. Years of playing around training with infantry units had taught me the necessity of being prepared. But poor Bob had no military driver's license. Breaking military protocol, it looked like the senior officer, namely me, would be chauffeuring the junior officer around. We dropped the specialist on post and, provided with directions, headed off for the retired, now reopened NATO installation. Twenty minutes or so later, we pull up to a paint-peeling guard shack located in the hills above Vicenza. The concertina wire-tip chain-link fence stretched around a thoroughly unkempt site. The grass sure didn't look like it belonged in a military installation, and the building hadn't seen a paintbrush in the decades since it was abandoned. Well, it's not a tent in the mosquito-infested northwoods of western Wisconsin, but our European sojourn is beginning to look a lot less glamorous. We weren't the first Illinois Army National Guard JAGs, the, that's the military acronym for military lawyers, to help out the overburdened 173rd staff. But we were the first to deploy after 9-11. We had heard the stories of Italian food, 
Italian wine, and weekend trips to Venice from our predecessors. They had been housed in a hotel on base and dined each evening in the officers' club or in one of the restaurants in Vicenza, immediately outside the base gates. The gate guard directed us to one of the bedraggled two-story barracks. Clearly not a five-star. In fact, not even a three-star hotel. We marched inside to see a sign, Barracks Chief. Clearly a step down from our predecessors. The chief handed us two keys, a stack of bed lemons, with two scratchy olive drab bowl blankets, and told us our room number. What? We're sharing a room? Come on now, I've got over 25 years total time in the military, and I'm a lieutenant colonel. What do you mean I'm sharing a room? Sorry, sir, I don't have any singles. This is all I've got. At least you're not in an open bay. An open bay is an open floor filled with 40 or so beds and a like number of footlockers that junior soldiers occupy. Up the stairs we marched, dragging our bags and looking forward to a hot shower after the multiple flights from St. Louis. Unlocking the door, we're greeted not by a double room, but a squad room. That's a room to fit an army squad of eight soldiers. Bunk beds, ancient mattresses, and metal locker doors askew. The beige-painted concrete block walls and gray linoleum-covered floors bore the marks of soldiers' use since the Eisenhower administration. The only redeeming feature, we could slide the six-foot-tall lockers around to provide a modicum of privacy between our bunks. Could be worse, we thought. Could be intense. In November, in the foothills of the Italian Alps. And no one is shooting at us. But then the shooting wouldn't commence for a couple more months, while the Bush II administration built its case for war against Iraq. But then it did get worse. The slamming of metal locker doors, combat boots clomping up and down the stairs, and the banging of Kevlar helmets dropped on the floors echoed up and down the halls. A detachment of National Guard military police occupied the better part of the second floor, While we worked a rather leisurely 8-to-5 shift at headquarters, the MPs who had been mobilized to provide extra security for overseas U.S. military bases after the terrorist attacks provided 24-hour coverage, with shift changes seemingly coming every couple of hours. As I look back on it, the privations we were encountering were trivial compared to those coming as the American military geared up for war. But then life is about managing expectations. When your expectation is a rather pleasant hotel-style room in a bachelor officer's quarters, next to the officer's club, with a quick espresso in the morning, and then you wind up in a battered 50-year-old barracks with communal showers and raucous soldiers half your age on an abandoned missile base miles from the nearest town, expectations are dashed. Although the quarter seemed grim to our sheltered eyes, we soon learned the off-post housing had some advantages. While there was no PX, no gym, no club, no cappuccino at the quick shop, we did have a staff car, civilian clothes to change into after duty, and the Italian countryside to explore in search of dinner. A few miles in every direction lay a small village. Each village had at least one restaurant. And since it was, after all, Italy, even though we were in tiny provincial villages, while the restaurants were plainly furnished, 
The food stunned us with its flavor and freshness. The slender bread sticks at each table, baked just hours before, broke our seven-hour fast since lunch. We spoke no Italian. Although with my high school Latin and semester of college Spanish, I could usually puzzle my way through a menu or a road sign. Invariably, the first question from the server came, Rosso e Blanco? Meaning red wine or white wine? Our answer, invariably, Rosso. The glasses topped off from a wine barrel, much like a draft beer is tapped from a keg at a college bar. The wine so fresh it virtually sparkled. As the driver, I never had more than one glass, but it seemed low in alcohol and incredibly fresh. The village wines, though simple, were delightful compared to the stale, overpriced Pinot Grigios in Venice aimed at the tourist market. As American soldiers, we were accustomed to eating dinner immediately after duty, or certainly no later than 6 p.m. or so. Italians, though, never dine before 8, and generally later. We frequently found ourselves the only diners, although there might be a few men enjoying a glass of wine as they chatted over the day's football scores, uh, that is to say soccer to Americans. Darkness fell by the time we left the JAG office to return to our barracks, so I found myself negotiating the narrow Italian roads without benefit of sunlight or streetlight. Not only was it dark, but we had no GPS, and I quickly learned that Bob not only had no military driver's license, he lacked the slightest sense of direction. I don't know if his big city Chicago upbringing caused the lack of navigational skill, but as we in the military say, he couldn't find his ass with a map in both hands. Thus, I not only had to negotiate the American sedan through country lanes, I had to remember each twist and turn in the darkened countryside as we sought sustenance. As we began to feel more comfortable in exploring the countryside, we found a small town where Galileo once lived. While duly impressed with the fact that Galileo had once lived there, our empty stomachs were overcoming our awe. As we drove the deserted streets, we spotted a courtyard with a sign indicating Ristorante. I promptly turned the staff car around to edge into the gated entry to the tiny, empty parking lot. Is it open? Bob asked. Sure it is. The sign says it opens at 20 hundred, I replied. 20 hundred is 8 o'clock in military and European time. Okay, but it sure looks close to me, he said. Look, there's somebody in the kitchen, I pointed out. We strolled into the empty dining room and waited. Several minutes later, a buxom young woman spotted us as she entered the dining room from the kitchen. With our clothes and early dining habit, she immediately deduced we were Americans. She seated us and graciously offered menus. With her limited English, she let us know that the kitchen was just opening and the selection therefore limited. But she offered the night's special. Tonight is Preto de Latra. She struggled to find the English words. Duck. Duck. Lacking the word, she placed a hand under each of her ample breasts and bounced them up and down, saying, Duck! Duck! And all the while, jiggling each breast. Wide-eyed, Bob and I struggled not to fall out of our chairs. Instantly embarrassed, she dropped her hands to retreat to the kitchen. We ordered 
pasta and the rosso. Oh, 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 oh,